0: Welcome to Beneath the Surface B-Sides, where we bring you full interviews with infrastructure experts. If you listened to last week's episode of this podcast, you heard excerpts from my interview with Dr. Ronan Lyons. He's an associate professor of economics at Trinity College Dublin and the director of Trinity Research and Social Sciences, an interdisciplinary research initiative that brings together scholars from across the university. In our conversation, he offers insights into the complexities of housing broadly and explains why the challenges plaguing housing markets are especially acute in Ireland. So, without further ado, here is a lightly edited version of my conversation with Dr. Ronan Lyons. Hello! Oh, yes, I'm so excited about this. Okay, so the first thing I'm just going to have you do is introduce yourself and your um, your academic affiliations, if you will.
1: Sure, so uh, my name is Ronan Lyons. I'm an associate professor in economics at Trinity College Dublin, where I'm also the director of a centre called Trinity Research and Social Sciences, which is like a, a collection of a few hundred uh, research active social scientists across all disciplines um, uh, in the social sciences here in Trinity. And um, people in Ireland might also know me because i i work on something called the daft reports Daftery daft.e is like the zillow or the right move um in in ireland uh, it's like a, a major property portal and uh, once a quarter or twice a quarter once for rental and one for sale i do housing market analysis so uh with the with the never dull Irish housing market, there's always something to talk about. So,
0: Ronan, I uh, well, that's actually really helpful. I'm curious about your journey into housing. How did that become uh, a topic of interest for you? And I'm also curious, if if I may, about your personal housing situation because you have it's three children. Is that right?
1: That's right. We've three three boys, six and under, so uh, a, a busy a busy household. Um, so I, I actually studied as an undergrad at, at Trinity, and I did economics and political science. And afterwards, as many people uh, find themselves, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was in the lucky position that I was offered a scholarship to stay at Trinity. And I, um, I did some research in an economic history, um, the history of trade and globalization, which I found really interesting. But then you're kind of like, well, I've picked one thing and I've sort of fallen into one thing. What what else do I want to do? So I worked in policymaking for a while. I worked for the National Competitiveness Council in Ireland. So Ireland is a small, open economy. It's really dependent on its ability to trade internationally. So the Competitiveness Council advises the the Prime Minister and the, the Cabinet on um, on where Ireland is doing well or badly. So that gave me, a, um, a, I suppose, a taste of of policy analysis, policy advice and policy making and how policy happens. Uh, and at the same time, a friend of mine had set up um, DAF.ie, the Irish property portal, when he was in high school, Towards the end in high school. And uh, after I finished my degree, he, he came to me and he said, you know, uh, could we do like a report where we look at the, in that case, just the rental sector in Ireland and how it's performing? Because there weren't, it wasn't the same, I suppose, measurement of, of housing market conditions at the time. So I, I, I sort of accidentally ended up in, in housing, but, but after working in, in, I was doing this as kind of like a side gig and I was, I was working for the Competitiveness Council um, and I did a bit of work for IBM uh, as part of their kind of policy consulting. And I, I was moving around, so I'd done research, I'd done making, I did um, private sector, but I realised that actually the thing I really enjoyed was research. So I had gone wandering around, but I, I came kind of full circle. And in some ways you have to do that, right? You, you have to go and, or somebody like me has to do that. I, I need to know what I'm not doing to know that I've made the right choice. Um, but in 2009 then I started in Oxford a, a doctorate there at looking at the Irish housing bubble and crash. And I finished 2013 and, and I was lucky enough The Trinity was hiring at the time. So I, I started in the Department of Economics then. And I've, I've kept those kind of, economic history or long-run economic development, that's one hat, and, and, and housing is another hat. And I see them as related because when you look at housing and you look at, at real estate, if you think about the immobility of a home or a building, when you buy it, you're, you're buying the opportunity associated with the location. And unlike a, a worker can move and financial capital can move, uh, and some workers are more or less mobile, that's certainly true, but a, a dwelling isn't. So, so the idea of using housing and using land to kind of tell us something about what is good or bad about a location or what people are more or less confident about, for me, that's, that's kind of like the heart of why real estate and why housing is really interesting. In addition to the very obvious thing that like, we all need somewhere to live, right? And if, as, as we'll presumably get onto, if we don't have enough places to live, then all sorts of problems arise from that.
0: That's actually exactly the next question. It's so funny, as we've um, done some of these interviews, I one of the producers we're working with was like, Tammy, I think you take for granted the idea that people just know what's going on with housing, what the problem even is, if there is one. So I might actually ask you that question, as, and, and maybe you can both couch it in Ireland, but I think it very this is very much an issue across the world. What is the basic challenge with housing right now? You know, whether it's affordability, not having enough homes, et cetera. Um, can you explain it to me like I'm
1: five? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. And I do think Ireland is a good microcosm of a lot of the issues that have arisen in many, especially high-income countries over the last 30, 40 years. Um, in, in short, we have a, a situation in Ireland where we have not enough homes getting built for the number of new households that would or should form. And some of that is population growth. And Ireland is, I think, unusual in Europe in that it will have faster population growth this century than last century. Uh, and some of that's the long shadow of there was a famine in the 1840s. And that kind of that's why there's such a large Irish-American community. And there's also a large Irish community in, in Britain as well. And, and, and that kind of has those deep historical roots. Um, but but since the 1980s and 1990s, Ireland has, has had a successful business model where it's it's a gateway to the single European market and as a result of that um, it has had all sorts of growing pains as in incomes have gone up, population has gone up, Ireland has gone from net emigration to net immigration and all of those are signs of success but unless you scale up the infrastructure as well um, then you will come up with all sorts of congestion challenges and the timing was fortuitous um, for things like road infrastructure. The European Union gave Ireland money to help build a motorway network. It didn't have any highways um, 30 years ago. Um, but in, in relation to housing, that's a much more local issue. And like many places, we have, for, for various reasons, many of which are, are worthy, made it more difficult to build a home. So in addition to the population angle, we also have something that's that's uh, common in other countries as well, but I think Ireland is particularly acute in this, changing demographics. So if you think of, of countries on a journey from having households of four or five persons on average to households having one or two persons on average. Uh, In some cases, maybe three, but your average household size is going from four to two. Even with the same population, you need twice as many homes, but the homes are different. And on top of that, if you go from rural to urban in the same sort of 100-year transition, you are going from larger rural homes to smaller urban homes. And that's a challenge of location and it's a challenge of mix, but it's also a challenge of viability because the not everything scales down. Like you need plumbing, you need a bathroom and a shower and a toilet and a kitchen, regardless of how many people you have in the home. You need some sort of basic infrastructure in there. So providing a home for one person is not a quarter of the cost of providing one home for four people. Um, and, and I think that's a big challenge that Ireland has struggled with, and I think other countries struggle with as well, it's, it's perhaps less obvious than the population increase bit. But certainly in Ireland's case, providing urban housing for smaller households is not something the country is, is good at. And it, it, it's even a, a struggle to get politicians and policymakers to recognise the scale of that need.
0: Could you explain basically what happens when when the housing stock doesn't match population growth or or immigration?
1: Yeah, so so actually, part of my part of my uh, doctorate, one of the main chapters was was trying to come up with what you might think of as a house price equation. You know, what happens house prices or housing prices if you know if income goes up, if supply goes up, if credit conditions get um, uh, tighter or looser? And the credit conditions bit was super important at the time because Ireland was coming out of a bubble and crash situation um, so that was kind of the focus at the time was how much if you change if you, nothing else changes and you loosen credit conditions what happens property prices and sure enough they they, they go up and tightening them um, brings them back down again and a lot of macroprudential rules are about trying to level that out take that channel for amplifying house prices up and down and just really kind of uh, calm it down. So that then leaves you, once you once you at least try and contain those credit conditions, um, then it leaves you with this kind of battle between supply and, and, and fundamental demand rather than um, kind of credit demand or asset kind of factors like that. And on the, the, the fundamental demand side, you've got um, income per household and you've got household size. And those two things in Ireland's case, have been, uh, in, in household size has been going down. right? So you need more households per population and, um, or more dwellings per population. And uh, incomes have been going up. And, the more, this, and this is another tricky bit for policymakers. The richer you get, the more you consume of everything. Some things you shift into and some things you shift out of. But you consume, on balance, more of, of everything the richer you get. And that includes housing. And going back to that, that piece of research I did for, for, for my thesis one of the things we were trying to do was take out that bit and say okay if you hold income constant and you increase supply by 10 percent what happens and our our, our best estimate was that if you if you did that exercise you would you would lower prices by about 12 percent and that and that's a kind of a fundamental that again in many countries people are questioning right because they see completions going up new homes more new homes getting built and they see prices of rents going up and they go, This can't you you can't you can't say to me that if you build more homes, prices will go down, because that's not happening at the moment. And and, and really this gets to the heart of so the, the social science of housing, is that that correlation is not about causation. That what's actually happening here is the homes are getting built because there's a lot of need. And in Ireland's case, there's a need for maybe forty to fifty thousand homes a year, and it's only building twenty thousand. Now, if you didn't build those twenty thousand, Rents and sale prices would increase even more. And, and and that's the tricky bit because it's very hard to argue with someone who doesn't who sees the correlation and doesn't believe the underlying theory. It's hard to say to them, Well, let's stop building and let's see how that goes. Right? That's not a viable suggestion, because that would make things worse, not better
0: the conversation about housing tends to be so polarized especially online but you know we're talking about people's livelihoods right like i'm nigerian we my parents immigrated to the us when i was about 2 months old and thank goodness they found a house in texas where we grew up but you know say they had moved to new york i think the situation would look very different or in ireland where my grandfather worked for for a substantial part of his career anyway i digress um, We know that house prices increasing is is sort of one of the obvious effects of of restricting the supply of housing for whatever reason. But I wonder, too, if you could just talk about some of the the sort of less well understood effects of of restricting the supply of housing.
1: I mean, Ireland's a good example of, I mean, it's hidden. People don't talk about it that much. But I mentioned earlier, Ireland's really dependent on uh, international investment, or at least. Outwardly focused. Some of it's indigenous and some of it's coming from overseas, but it, it's, it's about um, creating uh, sort of economic activity for exports. right? You're, you're, you're tapping into the European market. But over the last few years, the housing has been so scarce that firms have been holding back on expanding. I mean, think about how wrong that is, right? That you, you actually could hire you know, an extra 2,000 people. And you're choosing not to, not because you can't find work for them, but you can't find housing for them. I'm not saying everywhere suffers from that, but there are, I think, lots of places. If you look at New York and Tokyo over the last 50, 60 years, New York and Tokyo are roughly the same size. Um, they have now, since the 60s, they've had very different setups in terms of the ability to build new housing. Tokyo is now about twice as big as New York. and. And people will say, well, New York's big enough already, it doesn't need to get any bigger. But the point is, and you, you, know, you talk to, say, the um, economic geographers, people like Enrico Moretti or whatever, and they, you know it's the geography of, of where people are productive. And there are certain features uh, about locations that make them productive and that would allow people... To choose themselves if they want to move from say one part of the US to another in order to move into a growing industry and if housing is stopping that either internally in the US or internationally in the case of Ireland that's a real direct cost I mean housing is always and everywhere about someone's shelter right it's, it's, it's their home at night time um, but housing is, is seeping into being about livelihoods as well and whether we are an, an enabling people to have that was the most fulfilled potential that they can. That um, that if if we're not getting housing, right, that's for me one of the kind of the. It's 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 not hidden, but it's maybe not always highlighted. Um, the the costs of not enough not enough housing, but uh, like it does seep through everywhere. It's it's if you don't have enough housing. I kind of wow my undergrads with um, the story that say 20 years ago I had friends who moved out of their parents home in Dublin to rent a property in Dublin while they were in college because they were just like well hey I'm an adult I'll, I'll go off and I'll find somewhere to live that is like so far from the possibility now if you're a 19 year old student in Dublin you I mean you just stay at home with your parents there's, there's no option you may even have to commute. Uh, If you're outside Dublin, you may be commuting an hour and a half every way, very early in the morning and very late at night to go to college. And that has a cost, too, in terms of all sorts of things that are forgone that I took for granted when I was an undergrad that today's undergrads can't do. And I think they're hidden costs as well in terms of forming people um, and, and their opportunities, because those years, say, between 20 and 25 are so crucial to people who are saying in the higher education space, they're so crucial to what happens afterwards. Everything is path dependent.
0: Absolutely, I really appreciate that in particular because I think um, I think it's, it's just like poorly understood. Okay, so this is actually not super relevant to the podcast, but I am personally curious about it. Can you summarize Ireland's housing bubble and its subsequent crash in 2007? What happened there?
1: Yeah. Um you will see it given as an example of, well, this is, you know, like almost like a, like the, the textbook case of, you know, this is what happens when you let markets go wild. Um, and I think that kind of misses a, a key part of the story. Um, clearly, um, the global credit glut in the early 2000s was uh, an important factor. But you kind of have to rewind a little bit. And... Uh, in the mid-late mid, 1990s, um, policymakers were grappling with this idea that Ireland is growing, Dublin is growing, how are we going to provide new housing? And they came up with this scheme that said let's regenerate parts of Dublin as, as Ireland's biggest city and we'll allow people to write off construction costs um, uh, for building new homes. So it started out with this urban renewal thing, and that actually kind of worked quite well. I mean, you had organisations that weren't particularly familiar with building apartments. they used to building houses and they're now they're building apartments. So there might be kind of other quality issues there that we can come back to. Um, but, but overall, the, the goal of getting new housing where there was long-term demand was by and large met. And actually, rents fell during Ireland's um, boom and bubble. So many new rental homes were built that rents were cheaper in 2004, five, six, than they were in 98, 99, 2000. Um, and that's kind of fascinating because I people forget this because they just remember the sale prices bit was kind of through the roof. Um, so so politicians looked at this and went, "That's interesting. So if we do this kind of tax relief thing, we get lots of housing. So let's try it in all the other constituencies where we want to get re-elected." Right. So they went off and they said, "You know, like, rural parts of Ireland, let's let's get loads of housing built." Um, and it was a, a kind of a no-brainer for a, a developer because they could it didn't, the rental income didn't have to be from the property they were building in somewhere in rural Ireland, it could be from anywhere. And it didn't have to be that year, it could be you know, at some point over the next number of years. So they could build these properties and either, good case scenario, they get someone to live in them, worst case scenario, they don't and they still get a lower tax bill. And unsurprisingly, tens of thousands of homes were built in places where there was no long-term need. And at the same time, you had this credit bubble which was pushing up prices in lots of countries, Um, the US, UK, Spain, um, and Ireland was kind of right up there at the fore. Um, Incomes were going up, confidence was high, banks were getting uh, into mortgages. Um, We had kind of savings and loans like institutions building societies, but they sort of gave way to the banks and the banks became the main mortgage providers. But they didn't realize what they were playing with and they were giving people more and more leverage. So you had this these two things going on, lots of new homes getting built and prices going up a lot. And then the global gloss stopped, the bubble stopped, the music stopped. And, um, and then things turned pretty quickly. And the government at the same time decided to end the, the cost reliefs. They were like, well, hang on, what are we doing here, actually? And um, we should stop these reliefs. So Ireland in around 2007 turned and went from a sort of a decade of phenomenal increases in the stock of housing and in prices and, and that prices bit was credit driven, uh, it went the other way and, and prices fell by about 55% in the space of five years. And that's like kind of a national average in some segments. If you're in one of these places that got lots of extra housing, one of these rural markets. Um, the the cost of a a smaller home might have fallen by 80%. And, And even to this day, some of those rural counties that saw the most construction relative to the number of people in those kind of early 2000s years, housing today is still the same cost it was 20 years ago because so much was built. In Dublin, not enough was built, even in the bubble years, and housing is about a third more expensive now than it was um, uh, in two thousand. It, it's certainly not an, an even, you know, twenty years. It kind of went up and down, and then and then up again. Um, but paradoxically, for you know, like the narrative in Ireland would be that, well, supply doesn't keep prices under control because look what happened in the early 2000s. Paradoxically, what happened in the early 2000s when you take a step back and take out the credit bubble is a kind of a stunning endorsement of the idea that more supply makes housing more affordable. Because if you're in Leitrim or Longford, which are these rural counties that saw some of the most housing built, housing is really affordable there now compared to Dublin where it's not.
0: And so that's why in your web piece you talk about the sort of Irish ghost towns that actually aren't ghost towns, or at least, like, weren't intended to be. Um, It's so funny, because in that answer, you actually answer, like, the next three questions. Um, Your dissertation at Oxford, in it, you detail the various factors that affect home prices in Ireland. Um, Could you share some of those factors?
1: Yeah, what I had in mind here, and I guess, you know, I'm slightly different to the standard um, academic, because I had had that experience of seeing how policymakers worked or at least i like to think i'm i'm slightly everyone does right everyone's slightly different um but i said okay like there's, there's a morass of factors that can affect housing prices but can we distill them down to um to kind of the three four five six most important ones and i was lucky in that i had a supervisor who sees like i in many ways, I'm a product of of his way of seeing the world, right? My way of approaching a question like that, um, I like to think is mine, but really it's I'm, the, in the, I'm kind of inheriting a lot of his way of of tackling these questions. So you could have fifty factors that that drive house prices, but we were trying to come up with this list of the most important so that we could say to policymakers, if you if you're if you're looking at if you want to control housing prices, if you want to see what's going to happen next, these are the most important. And I mentioned, uh, household income. Right? So if, if, if household income goes up or down, and that can go up or down for a number of different reasons. One of the reasons household income went up in Ireland, say from the 90s to the 2010s, was because more and more women were actively in the labour market. So instead of one income or one and a quarter income, you might have one and a half or two incomes, In in and, and that will boost household income. Or unemployment, right? So the In aggregate, the higher the unemployment rate, the fewer incomes there are per household, right, on on average. So so there's a lot going on in that measure. Um, So household income is one, household size is another. And one of the things that was kind of under the hood at the time, and I'm focusing more on now to try and get the point across to policymakers, is that Ireland going from, say, three and a half persons per household to two and three quarters, that is, pushed up prices uh, by between 40 and 50% um, in the space of, of, of three decades or so. And, and I don't think that's appreciated. You know, the, you've the same number of dwellings, um, but you've more and more households, even with a similar population. And of course, in Ireland's case, population was going up, household size was going down. So there's an even greater increase in the number of, of households. And then there's the supply factor, right? So controlling for all those um, demand factors, fundamental demand factors, there's supply. And they're, they're the three kind of fundamentals, and you've got asset factors as well. Uh, and one of the asset factors is what's known in the literature as user cost. So how much does it cost you to hold a property one year to the next? And some of that is, is, say, expected capital gains, right? If you think your property is going to go up 20% between now and next year, it doesn't really matter if you've 1% property taxes um, or your cost of borrowing is 3%, um, you, are going to get, you think you're going to get this 20% gain. And that was a huge driver of demand. And then the final factor is, um, is credit conditions, that how much for a given set of savings, how much is the financial system leveraging you up? And in Ireland, like in many countries, we went from, say, 25% deposits in the late 90s to sometimes 5% or 0% deposits in 10 years later. And if you think of that as, in and of itself, going from 25% deposit to a 5% deposit, the same savings are gonna get stretched out a huge amount more. Um, in terms of the the mortgage you get given, now other factors come in there, but but those are kind of the the five ones that that household income, household size, um, housing supply, um, the user cost, and and credit conditions, and we kind of put numbers beside them and said, okay, if you want to think about what drives house prices. An X percent increase in incomes will do this and so on.
0: Was it like a like a um, like multiple regression analysis?
1: Yeah. So in terms of the methods, what we were using were they're kind of econometric methods. So what you try and you're trying to do is run regressions where you want to maximize the ability of the data to tell you what's going on. You don't want to say, well, we're going to assume people are this risk averse or that, you know, um, whatever it might be. You want to let the data tell you as much as possible. So it makes sense, uh, kind of like in a first pass theory. Level it makes sense that supply is going to be relevant for the cost of housing and incomes and so on and you can put them in and see what they tell you and you can also break it down and say earlier or later um, what um, which factors are most important and and that was one of the the punchlines at the time which was uh, almost ten years ago was that. 95 to 2001, prices increased, uh, house prices increased a lot in Ireland, but it was a mix of lots of different things. As Ireland went from being a sort of a declining population country to a rising population, rising income country. And 01 to 07, it was almost entirely credit conditions, right? Basically, nothing else changed. Yes, supply went up, but incomes went up almost one to one to match. So that the, of the, I think it was like the 8% increase on average per year in inflation-adjusted housing prices, 7.5% was coming just from credit conditions.
0: Uh, a comment and a question. Uh, the comment would be, the, the I've never heard anybody mention the shrinking of household sizes being a relevant factor in, in kind of the sort of increasing demand for housing, but it seems so obvious when you think about it. So that's very interesting. The question would be, you mentioned something a few answers ago about the difference between New York and Tokyo. Um, you know, decades ago, they had the same population size and now Tokyo is both much, larger, but also, I mean, I much larger, but but also much denser. And I know that that, I, I know very little about this, but I know that that's related to the differences in how, you know, Americans are even sort of extending it, uh, the West tends to treat housing as an investment rather than, than how um, Tokyo and Japan tend to treat housing. Could you speak to those differences a little bit?
1: Yeah. And and there's a, a great author called Bill Fisher who's written something called The Home Voter Hypothesis, and more recently he had a book called Zoning Rules. And if you read zoning rules, he kind of have a good character. He's an economist himself, but one who's proficient in in the law. Um, and he has a kind of good caricature of economists um, at the start of the book, where it's like an economist kind of assumed that 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 planners, are just sort of like economically illiterate and stop the building of housing for some reasons due to their own preferences and it's like no planners are responding to the demand for planning Um, that when they put in land use restrictions they're doing so because they get re-elected to do so Um, that people who come along and go i will but they won't phrase it like this but i will preserve the value of your home by limiting the construction of new homes that is a vote winner right whatever way you've got to um, sort of uh, not dog whistle it in but you've got to kind of indicate that you'll do that without saying, I'm going to price out new households. Um, but th- that's, that's a vote winner. And, and I think a lot of it comes from, uh, if there's, if there's a website, um, WTF happened in 1971, right? Like there's all these charts that suddenly just change in 1971. Um, and we can think of lots of, of potential factors in there. But, but I do think the 1970s The unexpected inflation in the 1970s, possibly driven by the oil price shocks or a combination of factors, including the oil price shocks, in places like the US, opened the eyes of homeowners to the idea that if inflation comes along, your debt stays the same size in nominal terms and your your property value goes up. So inflation is bad from a consumption point of view, but if you're a homeowner, it's good because the real value of your debt goes down. And, you know, like, we've, we've we've known this. That's why we had hyperinflation after World War I. Like, countries wanted to get the real size of their debt down, just add a few extra zeros to your, your currency and the debt goes away, that kind of thing. But, um, but doing it for households in a mass home ownership environment, because, of course, what had happened between the 40s and the 70s in the United States is there had been significant attempts to boost the home ownership rate for, you know, potentially very good reasons. But what, what it meant was that the... The typical district that's voting people in in the U.S. or indeed in, in a European country now has a majority of homeowners and, and their interests may differ from, from other, other households. And that was a kind of a key turning point, because once people were aware of that, they were able to co-opt all sorts of reasoning. Um, some of it environmental or um, uh, quality controls or whatever um, and and use those as fronts for what is effectively um, preserving the value of the biggest thing on their their balance sheet and in some ways they're entitled to do that you know if you I own a home um, and uh, in principle I could you know go out there and actively try and, and minimize the new housing supply to maximize the value of my home now I think that would be incredibly um, hypocritical of me given what I passionately believe about housing to, to be doing that so I, I I try and do the opposite I try and argue for more housing even though it's not in my own interests and that kind of you know this economy economists are laughed at for you know for assuming people are always super like automatons and and, and rational and so on right but um, uh, in my case I'm sort of like living proof if that that's not the case I suppose and um, but in general I do think that 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 switch got flicked in 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 say in the US in the 1970s and it didn't happen in other places and and that might be because the the age structure is different in japan now if you increase interest rates um that could be an economic uh, spur to activity right because the the age structure of the population they're net savers as opposed to net borrowers or there's different things going on in different countries or it could be just the the way the shock is felt um uh, the same shock but it's felt in, in in different ways in different countries but certainly if you look at uh, Ireland. If you look at lots of European countries, if you look at the US, um, we have ended up with a system where the incumbents, the people who are there already and secure in their housing, have um, disproportionate power over new housing supply.
0: It actually leads into, I, and I just have two more questions. Um, the next question, which is, you know, as you as you look. It's, I find it unfortunate that, and I understand why these debates often get so charged, but I do find it a bit unfortunate. And so I wonder, as somebody who does support, you know, more liberalized zoning, what do you think are the sort of most compelling arguments that opponents of liberalized zoning make?
1: I mean, there, there are, one, one relates to quality, I think, and one relates to, to distribution, right? So... People who, and um, you know, I, I would have in, in the Irish housing debate and people can go on Twitter and see, you know, like I, I would say something and you'll have there's a there's a group of people who will argue vehemently that, you know, against, say, if I argue for new rental housing in Dublin because it badly needed, people say, no, the rental housing that's getting proposed is not adequate. Um, and they'll say either, for example, um, either it's... Um, it's not good enough quality, so we need higher quality standards. Uh, personally, I don't think that's true of the, the housing that's getting built in Ireland at the moment. I think I've, I've tried to come up with a measure of it. Of course, I did. I'm an economist. Um, uh, but I've tried to come up with a measure of the quality of housing. And um, uh, I estimate the housing that's getting built now is about 50 percent higher quality in terms of the inputs, um, input materials than housing about 20 years ago. Um, so I don't think that's, that's true, but I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that if you build poor quality housing, you, you are creating future problems. Um, so we should be rigorous in terms of, of housing. Now there's an opportunity cost which gets to the distribution point. The higher your minimum standards, the more of the income distribution you're pricing out. And I estimate that, say, Dublin City's minimum standards around 2015 priced out 90% of the income distribution. Uh, And that's pointless. It's pointless having minimum standards that only allow um, 10% of people to enjoy new housing. Because what you do is you create segregated markets. So uh, from a distributional point of view, I think new housing shouldn't be the preserve of the market or shouldn't be the preserve of the state or whatever, I think we kind of need a holistic approach that says, if you think of it as as three groups in the population, you have the group that are rich enough based on current um, standards and prices to afford housing in the market. You have a group that are poor enough based on whatever the standards are for providing social housing, that they qualify for social housing. And then you've got a group in the middle who are not rich enough to afford market housing and not poor enough to qualify for supported housing. And really, if I were a, a housing minister or secretary, um, my, I mean, that, is, that is your goal. Your goal is to make sure that group doesn't exist, that they're either in the market or, or in the supported housing sector. In order to achieve that, you need both those groups, the kind of the market housing segment and the social or supported housing segment, to be responsive to underlying need. Um, so that, that's an argument where basically social or supported housing is a a complement to market housing it's it's not a substitute um and and i think that's one of the sort of one of my get out of jail cards when when some of my critics come along and say oh you're just like a shill for developers and it's all about profit for you um i've one guy who likes calling me a money astrologist because i'm an economist or whatever i'm like look, my estimate of housing need is high enough that I think the, the state should be supporting the construction of maybe fifteen to 20,000 homes a year. So like, I don't think I don't know of any competitor in Ireland's case that has a higher estimate of social housing need than me. I also have a higher estimate of market need because I believe the underlying need, say for one- and two-person households, as we get older, as we start families later, all that kind of stuff is adding new housing need, diversity of, of housing need. Um, so I think on quality and, and distribution, there are points to be listened to. I'm super reluctant to take into account. Um, like I think of this, right, I live at a in you know, central enough in, in Dublin, and I can see the, the Guinness Tower right from my from my bedroom window. I can look at it and I can go, oh, "There's the, the the Guinness Storehouse, which is like one of the most popular tourist attractions in Ireland." Now it's not particularly attractive, but suppose it were super attractive, and I'm like, "That's part of my view." Right across the road, there's a site that's going to get redeveloped, and they're going to put in I think um, five or six stories and put apartments. I think I should be entitled to say, well, yes, I don't think you should build that because I have a lovely view. Now, I think that um, observation on the new development should be given a weight of close to zero, and right? it is effectively irrelevant for society. Right, um, uh, that that I have a view of the Guinness Storehouse from my bedroom window. And that that it's nice for me. I didn't buy it. Right, like I, I bought it, but I didn't buy the property because the, if out of the window I can see the Guinness Storehouse or whatever it might be. Um, I think we need to be a lot more clear about the weight we give to arguments that are effectively arguments to keep housing prices high.
0: As you look across Ireland, and then maybe more broadly across the world, are there reasons for optimism on housing?
1: In Ireland, I I think there are, because things have been so, I mean, things have been up and down for different reasons, but things have been so bad for the last 10 years that... If you think of, just take the case of Dublin. Dublin is a a city of about 1.5 million people, uh, about a half a million dwellings. And the rental sector is about 150,000 rental dwellings. So not not quite a third, but not far off. As things stand, they actually recognised this a couple of years ago, policymakers, they said, we need to boost the supply of rental accommodation. We are now in the kind of the, the opposite of the sweet spot. We're in the eye of the storm at the moment because... Those plans have been lodged to build about 50,000 new rental homes, but very few of them have come on stream. So you have people saying, look, you changed these rules three years ago. And of course, COVID came in and didn't help. Um, and you changed these rules three years ago, and nothing has changed. In fact, rents have gone up. Like this is, things are getting worse, not better. And I look and I see about you know forty to 50,000 rental homes coming down uh, on stream um, over the next five or six years. And I say, Dublin is going to be such a better city for having... 200,000 rental homes rather than 150,000 rental homes and yes the new 50,000 are going to be expensive but we have made them be expensive because we have high standards. Uh, I I know some people disagree with that but I I do believe that that's true. We have high standards and the new rental accommodation is going to be expensive reflecting that. So that's the optimist. I'm like a natural born optimist. I I, I see things getting getting slightly better and I do again in the case of Ireland I think the things were so bad in providing what you might think of as social or supported housing over the last 20 years. It was sort of a decision in the early 1990s, implicitly, nobody ever stated this, but implicitly it was, let's stop providing lots of social housing by the state and by lending more and more uh, risky mortgages that we, and the US did the same thing effectively, that that will sort of step in, the market will step in for the state and we know post 2007 that that's not a a reliable way to provide housing for all but for about 10 12 years in Ireland's case um, there was not a huge amount of progress and just in the last 12 months or so there's been a bit of progress in terms of um, what like cost rental, so Jane Jacob writes about this in, in her book about how would you provide housing for all the death and life of great American cities. She talks about what we would call cost rental is that you know if a third of your income is the most you can spend on housing um how um how could you know, what do you do for people for whom that 's not enough to cover the cost of new housing and you 've got to kind of top them up to get to that point and, and, and Ireland is introducing a system a bit like that, and I think that 's going to make social housing or non-market housing more responsive to underlying need. So I'm, I'm an optimist for, for Ireland, even though I could also give you the list of clouds on the horizon or, or things that I think are wrong. Let's go with, with optimism. More, more globally, um, if I'm an optimist, it's kind of earlier in the pipeline of optimism. Like it's hard to point generally. I mean, it's hard to summarize generally about, about housing. And there's a couple of books actually that, that I've seen coming out recently um, one's called mass housing, I think, um, and it, it's trying to synthesize across countries. And actually, some of my own work, I'm working on a project that's funded by the National Science Foundation, um, looking at, at, at housing prices in the U.S. since the Civil War and trying to measure prices at a city level. And in doing that and in doing the same for Ireland and in doing the same for Canada to contribute to uh, an international, not debate, because I, I think that, that sets us up in the wrong but an international evidence base around um uh, around what's happening housing markets now and how it fits into a longer term a longer term picture but i've digressed a little bit that the drawing i suppose drawing conclusions about the global housing system or even the housing system in the high income world if i'm optimistic i think it's because there's a lot more people who believe housing to be important to research and we're we, we know so much more than we did 10 years ago that, so that's on the research side that of optimism. I, I think that will filter through into the policy side, but I do think that every country is gonna to have to come up with its own way of wrestling with the, um, the, 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 the promiscuous veto um, um, with, the, with the power of incumbents. Um, and some, of it, some countries may not be able to solve that until you've, things have got so bad, you've got a majority of renters in, in certain key parts of your country, and, and then the, the power switches.
0: Ronan, that's all I have. Thank you so, so, so much. I actually do have a separate question. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for the series are myself and Everett Ketigbak. This episode was produced by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. Whitney Chen was our production manager. Our associate producer and editor was Astrid Landon. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee. Original music for this episode was composed by Arabus. Additional editing support was provided by Emma Jackson. To learn more about Stripe Press, our books, our films, and more, visit press.stripe.com. Okay, that's it for this B-side. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface, B-Sides.